The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Esquire Features, a series of stories written for the magazine and read aloud for your enjoyment. Today's story, The Secret Lives of Suburban Stoners, was written and read aloud by John H. Richardson. She's in the antique business, so her house is stuffed with every kind of Queen Anne, stickly, needlepoint, Tiffany thing you could imagine. On the dining table, she's got the most elaborate place settings I've ever seen at the home of a peer. She stops in the middle of dinner to take three plates back to the kitchen because she forgot the underplates. What's an underplate, you may ask? That goes under the main plate and keeps everything tidy, she explains, pronouncing it tidy. This is a few years ago, our first dinner party in the suburbs, and we're still joking about the frightening, exotic difference of it all. You come out here to give the kids good schools and greenery, and next thing you know, you've turned into your parents. And now, underplates. There are eight of us, four couples, all in our 30s. We met through our kids. The host is a mild, handsome man named Rob, who works in local news and seems to view his wife's underplate obsession with habitual amused detachment. The second couple is Dave and Liz, another detached, ironic husband with an eccentric wife. Last are Pam and Frank, both big and blonde and amiable and usefully employed in the fields of corporate PR and advertising, respectively. Pam also teaches Sunday school. As we eat, we talk about local schools and stores, movies and politics. After dinner, Dave pulls out a thin joint. I make a joke about having stumbled into a secret suburban nest of stoners. You'd be surprised, Dave says. When the joint gets to Pam, she pinches it like an expert and puckers her lips to suck. But you're a Sunday school teacher, I say. She shrugs. I feel much better. In fact, it's like being a disaffected teenager all over again, smuggling a little danger into this bland, white bread world. Maybe the suburbs won't be so bad this time around. It is a lovely place, leafy and green. In the summer, the town maintains a half dozen flower beds. There are some really cute little dress shops and an ice cream parlor and the best old-fashioned general store in the world. The school is definitely the temple of our civic religion, the grandest public building by far, the place where we meet all our friends. By the time we give our first Christmas party, almost everyone we know has a kid in the first grade. They're well-behaved and pleasant people, sensible types who save nuts for the winter. Then Dave comes up and asks if I want to slip out to the deck. Rob and Pam are going too. You can do that in here, I tell him. After all, it's our house, it's a party, and the kids are overnight with their grandmother. We even put out a few ashtrays to encourage the last few cigarette smokers on earth. Even better if they're used for this. But Dave says no, the deck is better. So we stand out there shivering in our party shirts. That winter, my boiler dies in the middle of a snowstorm, and the oil company says they can't get a guy to me for four more hours. 
We're sitting there listening to the pipes crack when Dave suggests a guy named Steve who lives down the road and is real handy. I never met the guy, but I call him, and he comes right over and spends an hour helping me get the boiler started. Turns out he also likes to smoke a little, so one night we hook up after the kids go to bed and tool around in his little black sports car while he tells me tales of suburban life. He's lived here for 20 years, the longest of anyone near my age. Moved here in his 20s after a string of early professional successes. He remembers when there were bands playing in all the local bars back before the drinking age was raised and knows who's had affairs with who. When we're properly baked, we stop in at the local bar along with the other restless husbands, stuck between the college kids and the old guys playing bones. The next Christmas at the party, the joints come indoors and there's almost immediately a loosening, a feeling of night glamour, a more adult charge in the air. Later I hear that one couple got upset and would not be coming again, but I shrug it off. Like most people who would get upset about a little reefer, they were dull. Druggies are lively. A few months later, we go to dinner at Dave and Liz's house. Dave loves jazz and chilled vodka, and after dinner, he breaks out a tinfoil-covered cube of hash. As we smoke it, passing a tiny pipe over the Swedish plates, Liz tells me I have to be careful what I do and say in this town, especially when it comes to drugs. I tell her I really don't care what people think about me. It's not you, she says. Your kids are going to grow up here. The night I first met her, my wife had her own stash. I was going through one of my periodic dope fasts, but naturally I said to hell with it, don't be a fool, you're with this pretty girl and she's offering you dope. Now she barely even drinks and hates my smoking. She says she can't talk to me when I'm stoned and feels like I'm not fully there. I'm sorry, did you say something? Those first few years, I work in the city and my main dealer is this beeper delivery guy who has many clients in my field. Ring his beeper and he comes right to the office, dressed for business and carrying a briefcase. The stuff is ridiculously expensive and it bothers me that he's exposing me to the risk of cocaine when all I want is pot, but my alternative is scoring from the Rastafarians in the park. Then I start working from home and the beeper guy cuts me off because I'm out of his delivery radius. So it's back to the whole paranoid ordeal of skulking into the park and approaching the very conspicuous Rastafarian du jour and making a request and waiting like Lou Reed said before hurrying through the clumsy handoff. All of which yields, often as not, a fairly crummy buy. Plus an hour's drive into town and another hour home. And a good chance of joining the 700,000 Americans who get busted on pot charges every year. One night, I head for town in a driving snowstorm. Halfway there, the snow is coming down so hard it's like something whipped into a frenzy. What the hell am I doing? Steve's wife's birthday is tomorrow, and she made it clear she wanted a croissant in bed, which has sentimental meaning, memories of the early days of their romance. And Steve knew that, and still he somehow let it slip and get later and later, and now it's after nine and everybody's out of croissants. He even called a French restaurant. It's a breakfast food, they told him. Of course it's a breakfast food. What was he thinking? So he picks me up and off we go on the great croissant hunt, hitting every coffee shop and restaurant in the surrounding area. Reeking of reefer, we bolt into one joint after another to beg for a very specific French breakfast pastry. And when they don't have it, we rush right back out the door. Obsessed croissant addicts, fearless croissant hunters. At a Starbucks wannabe two towns away, we finally snag what must be the last pair of croissants in the country, and a forlorn pair of aging pastries they are, but a marriage is saved. 
Each year, our Christmas party gets more lively. By the time the kids are in third grade, it's something of a neighborhood event. This year, our guests include a famous musician and a couple that is not only young, but also mixed in race. They just moved into town and have a kid in third grade. I do the host thing and chat them up and learn that Gina met Malcolm in high school a few towns over, and it was a big family scandal, but they're still together. When the reefer comes out, Malcolm can't believe it. He looks at Pam and says, if I saw you driving around town, I would think... He stops before he says something that might be insulting. I would never imagine you smoking herb. Then the musician pulls out his own stash and one of those little wooden pipes with a cover plate that swings out on a hinge. Paraphernalia. Malcolm can't believe this either. When the last stragglers leave at three, Gina and Malcolm leave with them, full of thanks and goodbyes and promises of next time. Usually I take comfort in the thought that the local cops aren't going to lock up a bunch of Sunday school teachers driving a few quiet blocks home. But what about Malcolm? Nationwide, a black man's odds of going to prison on drug charges are 13 times those of a white man. Will the local cops let him go with a warning? At the local health food restaurant, Pam tells me about her spinning class. After a lie or two about my treadmill usage, I nudge the conversation to the thing that's worrying me. If the kids ask us about drugs, do we just say they're bad for you and leave it at that, in which case we'd all be hypocrites and the kids will undoubtedly come to despise us? Or do we take the opportunity for a teachable moment and explain about alcohol and prohibition and the government's tyrannical and puritanical animus against any substance that alters consciousness? Or do we just tell them it's a very difficult issue and kids their age are better off following the rules? I'm much less complicated, Pam says. I plan on lying. Pam gets high a couple times a week. As far as she's concerned, pot just fits better than alcohol with her active physical lifestyle. It's not debilitating. It just slows you down a little. Although he doesn't smoke himself, her husband's cool with it. They even have a routine. She tells him she's going upstairs to check her email, and he keeps the kids out of her hair. The girls chase fireflies until it gets dark, capturing them in a jar. After they go in for their bath, I linger outside. Ten minutes later, my youngest comes to the door with her hair wet and a towel around her shoulders, her innocent eyes going wide. Daddy, there's a firefly right at your mouth. I pretend to be amazed. I don't see it, honey. It was right there. Tonight, we're on our way to score. Steve knows this guy who lives in an elite suburb in a house worth half a million and sells dope on the side, kind of a hobby. It's always very good and very expensive. We park in the guy's driveway and I wait in the car while Steve makes sure it's okay for me to come in. There's a BMW parked next to me and the house is one of those gabled suburban manors with dark English beams and ivy. Quite a lot to risk in a country where 84,000 people a year are busted for selling pot. But deep in his heart, the true stoner can't believe that such an unreasonable thing could actually happen. I listen to the radio for about 20 minutes and then Steve comes out shaking his head. This isn't a good time to come in, he says. He's all stressed out. But he scored. For 60 bucks, he's got about enough for five joints. I'm always quitting, constantly. It amazes me that my neighbors are so comfortable with their habits. It's like a joke. If an atheist and a Sunday school teacher both have drug habits, which one will feel more guilty about it? But for me, the whole drug thing is my own weird little religious agonistes, complete with regular cycles through sin, damnation, and redemption. Sometimes in a righteous wine, I point out that I've already quit tobacco and alcohol, but it doesn't help. I can't justify what I do. For one thing, I don't do it in a healthy, cheerful, reasonable way. 
I admired the way my father drank his scotch, brooding over the tragedies of history. Smoking is my small twist on the family talent. From my perch, I reached down to pick up a fragment and examine it very closely. My brother-in-law says he knows a guy I should meet. They work together at an auto shop, and he's a real oil-under-the-nails car obsessive, the kind of guy who buys up old Chevys because someday he might need the part. Also a guitar player. So one night, I follow my brother's car to a town 10 miles west and an income bracket or two down until we get to a pretty little house hidden in the woods. Joe's a skinny guy, tense and friendly, constantly sipping a cup of tea. We spend a couple of hours getting stoned and playing music, and then his wife gets home and takes me into the bedroom, where she pulls out a big oven baggie bulging with green buds. She also has a scale. Karen's kind of gruff about the whole transaction, like she doesn't really want to do it, but somehow you're forcing her, which is actually a fairly common trait among dealers. But the price is amazing. One night, over at Dave's house, while his wife and 12-year-old are upstairs, we go into his office to smoke a fatty and talk about this questionnaire they passed out at the school. Apparently it asks questions about alcohol and drug use at home, and everybody's talking about it. We are all acutely aware that they've been working on our kids since the fourth grade, with footage of car crashes and diseased lungs, and kids whose lives were ruined by drugs. Now they've got something called Operation Clean or Assignment Health or something like that, and the questionnaire is part of it. Since Dave's recently gotten a job that involves him with the town government, I pick his brain. Then Liz shouts a question down the stairs, and Dave passes me the joint and opens the door to shout an answer, with his kid standing just outside the door. When he closes it again, I ask him what he's going to do if Travis catches on. They could end up like that couple in Washington State who lost their house after their son told a teacher about their pot plants. I'm working on him, Dave says. Just today there was that basketball player arrested for possession, and they kept referring to it as a drug, and I said to him, it's not a drug, it's an herb. When I express surprise, Dave tells me he has no shame about smoking pot. I'm a member of normal, he says. But we have to keep that quiet because he's paranoid about getting busted, and Liz is even more paranoid, and now, of course, with the new job, he has an actual position in the community to think about. The next morning when I tell my wife this story, she talks about how horrible it would be if the kids developed addiction problems. They've got the gene from both our families. Face it, honey, I say, they're going to experiment. She knows my theory about this. Whether it's a warped substitute for lost initiation ceremonies or an inevitable expression of some fundamental genetic need, at a certain age, a certain type of kid needs to test himself by walking up to the edge of reality. It doesn't matter if you're white or black, rich or poor. And in our culture, the most common route to that edge is through drugs. I don't mind them experimenting, she says. What really depresses me is the thought of them drinking heavily at 40. Going to the store again, cruising past all the blooming hydrangeas and rich green lawns, the town maintenance crew working on the baseball field, the amazing display of spring daffodils outside town hall. I've lived in one-room apartments and huts with dirt floors, gone months without plumbing, 
cook tortillas on a stove made out of hardened mud, and walk the alleys between the scrap houses of rag pickers who live on garbage mountains. I have seen an entire village without a single roof, varieties of rolling paper from one of those cartridge dispensers they use for the most popular point-of-purchase products, zigzag, easy-wider, easy-double-wide, easy-one-and-a-half. The international drug trade earns $400 billion a year, and this is where it ends. The double-wides, please, I say. The clerk hands them over without a word. I pick Pam up at her house in my new convertible, and we drive the back roads to the reservoir and pull into a turnout overlooking the water. I produce a joint. Oh, goody, Pam says. Pam usually uses this one-hit porcelain cigarette thing she keeps in a special box, grinding the hollow tip into the pot and taking a puff, then knocking it clean and filling it up again. A joint is a treat for her. I got lots, I say. Now that I have the world's greatest local connection, I got more and cheaper dope than ever before, and I'm happy to share it in exchange for the strange saga of a dope-smoking Sunday school teacher. Tell me your drug history, I say. I'll do this hit, and then I'll tell you. She cracks up, impish with her own badness. It's still funny to see her smoking like this, looking like such a salt-of-the-earth suburban mom, always dressed down and never a hint of makeup, face flushed from tennis and one of her regular 10-mile bike rides. No surprise that she grew up in a small town, a good student active in church and school, started smoking behind the family barn in the spirit of innocent girlfriend mischief. In senior year golf class, they'd smack balls deep into the woods and tell the teacher they had to go find them, then whip out one of those soapstone pipes as soon as they hit the tree line. She smoked a lot in college studying literature, and when she first went to the city, she'd score in the park and smoke and sit there knitting in the sun, talking to the old woman on the bench. Then she pretty much gave it up. In the world of her 20s, working all day and hitting the bars at night and getting more active in church, too, there was just too much to do. She didn't really start up again until she had kids and moved to the burbs. Especially having little toddlers running around, it was sort of kind of too annoying to do it straight. We pass the joint back and forth, enjoying the breeze through the trees and the light on the water, and I ask her how she came to teach Sunday school. She says she started when her oldest was ready to take his first class and continued for almost 10 years now, because it's so satisfying to get the kids thinking about God. Not to turn them into little soldiers for Christ, but to give them the tools to think about an area that's extremely important for every human to think about. And you don't see a conflict between smoking dope and serving Christ? She shakes her head. I'm of the attitude that this splendor was put here for us to explore, you know? We get to Joe's around one, me lugging my best acoustic and my daughter Tony carrying the baby Taylor in its little blue gig bag. This is going to be her first time playing out, so Joe and I rehearsed a few of her tunes and lined up a mandolin player and a stand-up bass and this older guy named Banjo Bob, who's supposed to be pretty formidable. We say hello and tune up, and Tony does the shy girlish thing for just a minute before leading us into what if God was one of us. After a bar or two, the guys grin and fall into the groove. Banjo Bob takes the first lead. He looks like a clerk in an old-fashioned hardware store, but he's a real solid player, stating the melody perfectly and building it up and turning it around. At the first break, I ask Joe how the hot tub project is coming, and he takes me out for an inspection tour. When we come back, chewing breath mints, we walk right into a lecture about drugs. It's really important to keep your head clean, Banjo Bob is telling Tony. At your age, you're going to be making all the decisions that will shape your whole future life. You don't want to mess that up with drugs. 
Clearly, he knows what we were doing out there and is making a point. But why involve my daughter? Why is this self-righteous, sprout-eating prig criticizing me to my own daughter? And what if she catches on? It's freezing outside, so we go into the garage, huddling together on the far side of the Saab, both aware that it's kind of ridiculous for us to be shivering in a garage like a couple of teenagers. I'm basically a law-abiding citizen, Dave says, and every time I smoke a joint, I break the law. I want to make it so I can smoke and not be a criminal. Dave doesn't smoke in his car. He doesn't take the dog for a walk. He stays in some safe and private space, on the porch or at a friend's house. After a buy, he drives straight home without making any stops. And he always buys from friends. At this point, he'd rather quit than buy on the street. That's why the whole dare thing is bugging him. Supposedly, the policeman gave some kind of interactive talk about drinking and smoking and what the kids have observed in the world around them, and now Dave has fantasies of some guidance counselor or authority figure calling him up with questions. Kids that age haven't learned to lie yet. It's like taking advantage of their honesty. The whole thing is ridiculous. Of the people he knows, friends and acquaintances, if they were handed a joint at a party, 80% would take a hit, at least 80%. If they say no, it's usually, nah, but my wife would. A lot of people go, oh God, I haven't done that in so long, or I can't remember the last time I did this, and then they'll smoke it down to their fingers. He chortles and sucks on the joint. He cycles through smoking every couple of days to smoking two or three times a day, spending about $200 every three or four months, a pretty economical habit compared with wine. But he definitely doesn't want Travis smoking anytime soon. If he caught Travis smoking, he'd try to find out where he got it and who else he was smoking with and call all their parents, too. A kid's mind should be formed without the influence of drugs. We're coming back from an emergency dog food run in the middle of a sunny afternoon when Tony suddenly asked me, Why do people take drugs? I hesitate for a second, considering her age and my conscience. Well, because they're fun. She looks surprised. I mean, they're also bad for you. They can be very bad for you, but people take them because they're fun. I was wondering, because the D.A.R.E. officer made it sound like only someone really crazy would take drugs, she says. What do you mean? Like, all they did was terrible things, so why would anyone want to take them in the first place? Like, what kind of terrible things? They showed this one movie where a girl drank just one glass of wine and did things so she lost all her friends from just that one glass of wine. Really? Just one glass of wine? She nods. I tell her that some people do get hung up on drugs and waste their lives and get into a lot of terrible trouble, but it's just like some people will have a beer or two or a glass of wine and others will get drunk all the time. The problem's in the person, not the drug. But just in case you're one of those problem people, it's probably better not to go messing around with it. She rolls her eyes like she would ever even consider such a thing. Silly daddy. Karen sits at her desk, half hidden by tchotchkes and crafts and cardboard boxes, reviewing the accounts of her freelance crafts business on her computer. I'm doing 10 grand a year now, she says. Karen's the most entrepreneurial gal I have ever met. 
When she's not doing this, she's hard at work on some insanely elaborate home beautification project. Plus, she has a full-time job in the city and the little sideline that brings us together. Got anything good? She nods and pulls out an oven baggie of bud. The odd thing is, she doesn't even smoke the stuff. She says it's because she's put so many years into her job, she's not about to let some random drug test threaten her pension. But I think she's just one of those people who likes dealing. She's been doing it since she was a teenager. It just made sense to sell off most of her bag to her friends so she could get her own stash free. And then they'd come around asking for more, and hell, it was free money. And it was an adventure, you know? That paid for some great vacations. I hate it, Joe says. My nerves can't take it, especially when you're in the car with a big bag of dope and a cop pulls up beside you. Karen grins. Today is Tony's D.A.R.E. graduation. Sitting in the audience in the same school theater where we've seen band concerts and school board meetings, I'm struck by the sight of the blue police suits and brown-handled guns. On stage, the cops are friendly and smile a lot. A few months later, a kid from the eighth grade gets caught sharing a small bag of pot at one of the school dances. His parents send him to military school. Saturday afternoon, and all the kids are gone. Pam goes into her office and gets out her trusty porcelain cigarette. She's just finishing up the second or third hit when there's a banging at the door downstairs and someone comes in the house. Mom, you have to drive me over to Travis's house. Pam yells down the stairs. I'll be right there. Goes into the bathroom and washes up. Mom, Pete yells. I'm coming. And she runs down the stairs and the keys are lying there on the table and she has to lean across him to reach them. Pete wrinkles his nose. Ugh, your breath smells like smoke. Quickly he adds, I'm not saying you smoke or anything. I've got really bad coffee breath, she says. After the kids go to bed, Steve and I go for a drive in his new luxury sedan, which has one of those awesome sound systems that involves components bolted into the trunk. Steve burned a sizzling funk CD to demonstrate it. Thank you for letting me be myself again. We drive and pass the joint, Steve constantly reminding me to keep it low. Don't be so paranoid, man. We're homeowners. Occasionally, the local cops do catch people smoking in cars. Usually, it's just a ticket. Toward midnight, Steve gets melancholy. We've done everything for the first time, he says. What do you mean? You know how you're all anxious and excited, and you wonder how something's going to be? We'll never feel like that again. We're just repeating things we've done before. We drive on through the dark streets. Dave starts looking for a new job, he realizes he might have to take a drug test. He talked to his friends, a suburban dad with a sales job and a couple people in arts-related fields. One suggests Golden Seal, another suggests going to GNC. Then he tries an internet search engine, typing in the words that seem most pertinent, pass your drug test. The first thing that comes up is a site called passyourdrugtest.com, which has lots of helpful information and also sells test kits for $15 a piece. He buys three. The kit shows his urine is positive as expected. Now to get it negative. He drives all the way to the city. Instead of going to the GNC in his own neighborhood, almost like he's going to a porn store or something, and asks the Indian guy behind the counter for something to help him detox. From anything specific, 
Dave hems and haws, and the clerk leads him over to a shelf with colon cleansing products. And Dave examines a few packages before finally confessing, actually, it's for a drug test. Aha, says the clerk, taking out a key and leading him back to the register. He unlocks a drawer and starts pulling stuff out. Here's some clean blends herbal tea, just $30. And for a quicker clean, here are the original quick caps from Herbal Clean. Nothing is faster or easier than herbal clean in a capsule. And for a real fast emergency flush, here's some GHF fast flush liquid, just $45. The hard part is staying straight. Six weeks into the job hunt, he's sick of it. Everything's so monochromatic. It's like only eating chicken every night. At a secluded picnic area in the town park, some kid has decorated the tables with marijuana leaves and graffiti. Smoke pot every day. A few minutes later, Pam pulls up in her convertible. So far today, she's been on a 12-mile bike trip and worked out with her personal trainer. She lays out her sandwich and her bottled water and tells me about Pete's school report on Willie Nelson. He was really getting into it and learning a lot about him, and one of the facts that he was amazed about was that Nelson smoked pot every day and was proud to say it and felt it was really good for him. He laughed and said, I'm not going to put that in the report. She's convinced the kids know. I'm sure your kids know, too. You think? I'm sure. I'm sure they talk about it. Really? Yes, there's just no way. They just know this stuff. In my heart, I'm still hoping the kids are oblivious. I feel bad about the hypocrisy thing, Pam says. Pretty soon I'm going to get some teen lash out of, you big fucking liar, everything you tell me is a lie. But I don't know what to do about it. She can't discuss it openly. Kids are too young to make distinctions between reasonable laws and unreasonable ones, and she doesn't want to confuse them. She doesn't want to make a mockery of the laws of the land. And she definitely doesn't want that confusion to lead them to smoke. If she caught Pete with a joint, she'd tell him he's young and needs to be Mr. A student, well-rounded, growing individual right now, and later he can do what he wants. She sighs. I worry much more about Nick. His personality is much more experimental, taking things too far. I worry about both of mine, I say. This year, Pam's more political, griping about the war on drugs and the cultural duplicity in which we tell kids that smoking pot is a terrible crime but sit and watch these TV ads for antidepressants all the time. Take this little pill, you can have fun at parties again. It's ridiculous. My wife thinks the kids know too. They have to, she says. I'm still hoping they haven't got a clue. They're not stupid, she says. Next to Pam, my new friend Phil is the most unlikely smoker. He's a small, eccentric man, very successful in his field, tends to dress like he's paying a call on Ralph Waldo Emerson. Phil loves to work stoned. This is one of the first points of stoner connection between us. Most people fall asleep or get distracted, but for us, drugs and a deadline are the perfect combination. Everything fades away but the work. A few months ago, Phil went to a very expensive local psychiatrist and talked about this, and the guy told him he was using pot to self-medicate, that he probably had attention deficit disorder and needed to get on Ritalin. So you're taking Ritalin? How is it? It's great. And you get the same deep focus? Yeah. Are you high right now? Yeah. Give me some. And he does. It's kind of speedy, a nice wiry buzz. Later I go to the same doctor and we talk for all of 30 minutes before he tells me that I am also self-medicating and have attention deficit disorder and would benefit from a regular course of Ritalin in combination with an antidepressant, perhaps lithium. He's offering me a narcotic that I can get at CVS and I can put it on my health insurance. But I don't know. I don't want to get dependent on drugs. The shrink raises an eyebrow. Sounds like you're in a little bit of denial, he says. 
A house burns down right here in the school district, and police say the fire was started by grow lights in the basement. Dave's decided that Pam's right, lying is the best policy. He says now that if Travis found his stash, he'd say he bought it for educational purposes and was hoping Travis would find it so that they could have this discussion. If I could pull that off, I'd be the master. Has it been eight years? Here we are back at the Queen Anne house for Rob's 50th birthday. His 50th birthday. Eight years of renovation and planting and now the place is gorgeous. A fountain tinkling and flowers hanging and candles burning everywhere. His wife had childhood and college pictures of him blown up professionally and placed all over the house on easels and walls and tables. In one college era picture, he's lying under a piano smoking something suspicious. Which reminds me, I brought some primo red hair for the festivities. Rob says we should wait until the party's rolling. Plus, we should be kind of discreet because there are a few people here who are part of the political system. Really? Like who? He nods at a guy in khakis and a golf shirt. That guy's a state prosecutor. He looks like all the rest of us in his 40s, dressed casual Friday, short hair, and the look of a dentist trying to relax. He prosecuted a homicide, Rob adds. We're sitting in the garden, candles glowing on the table. A pair of waitresses in white shirts weave through the crowd, bearing shrimp and seared tuna on silver trays. By 11, there's a clot of stoners smoking across the street. Grouped around a car, ringed by some of the nicest Victorians you'll see, they pass one joint and then another. I'm standing in the front yard talking to Rob and the prosecutor when we start drifting over. I look at the prosecutor and give a little half wave. See you later, man. He seems like a nice guy, but I know that America's prosecutors are almost invariably the most ardent supporters of harsh drug laws, so I just assume he doesn't want to be included. But when we start walking, he starts walking too. I'll be your chaperone, he says. Under the leafy trees arcing over the street, golden light in the porch windows, we lean against a car and pass the pipe. Someone starts singing a Motown song and someone else joins in singing much too loud. Others murmur in intimate voices. Someone laughs and then someone else does too. The prosecutor jokes and makes small talk as if nothing unusual is happening. He seems so harmless. When the pipe gets to his part of the circle, we just pass it around him. Not to snub him, but to be polite. Why make the poor guy feel any more conspicuous? The Secret Lives of Suburban Stoners, written by John H. Richardson, was featured in the February 2002 issue of Esquire magazine. More of John's stories can be found at Esquire.com. Today's podcast featured music by Baltimore band Plans Plans. More of their music can be found at www.plansplans.us. Esquire Features is produced by Michael Cades and Sandy Getbam-Rungrat. Thank you for listening.